0: And welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am Nurse Mo, and as always, really excited that you're here with me today. We're going to be talking about pediatrics today in episode 206. And of course, before we do that, I always like to take a minute to thank those of you who subscribe to the podcast and take the time to submit reviews. And sometimes you have really great names that are part of your maybe your Apple ID. So as those come through, I absolutely love seeing them. And this one is no exception. It goes out to Hi, Cupcake. And this person says, I started listening to this podcast in spring of 2019 when I applied to nursing school and I just took my NCLEX and passed. I'm so thankful for this podcast. Not a week went by that I didn't listen and re-listen to episodes. Thank you, Nurse Mo. All right, to my friend, The High Cupcake, thank you so much for submitting that review. It means the world to me that not only did you take the time out of your busy schedule to do that, but that you incorporated the podcast and me into your study routine. So thank you so much for including me on your journey. So if you're not yet following the podcast or subscribe to the podcast, go ahead and do that because every Thursday the episode will automatically appear for you like magic in your library. And then when we do bonus episodes, which we do occasionally, you'll get those as well. And if you really want to take it to the next level, leave a review and maybe you'll be the next person I give my listener shout out to when I say hi to my San fam. Okay, let's move into the topic for today, which is Tetralogy of So this is a pediatric condition, and it is a cyanotic congenital heart disease condition that is characterized by four key defects. So that's where that tetralogy part comes in. There's four key defects. And these are pulmonary stenosis, right ventricular hypertrophy, ventricular septal defect, and an overriding aorta. So let's talk about each one of these. So pulmonary stenosis in Tetralogy of Flow is a narrowing of that pulmonary valve and outflow tract, meaning the heart's going to have to work a lot harder to eject blood into the pulmonary artery And as a consequence, we also have reduced blood flow to the lungs. You may also see this referred to as a right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, or RVOT. Just know that that is referring to this pulmonary stenosis. And then right ventricular hypertrophy means that the ventricle wall of that right ventricle is thicker than it should be due to that right ventricle having to work so hard. And when you have hypertrophy, which is really hard to say, um, then the heart's not going to work as effectively. And then we have ventricular septal defect, and this is an opening in the septal wall between the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And what this does is it allows that oxygen-poor blood of the right ventricle to get mixed in with the oxygen-rich blood of the left ventricle. And as you can probably imagine, that's not going to be very good for perfusion and getting oxygen to the body and then we have an overriding aorta. So some sources will state that the aorta sits over this Ventricular septal defect. And then other sources I saw stated it sits over both the left and the right ventricle. And the reason it may be stated that way is because it is essentially sitting over both ventricles when there is a defect. Both positions or both explanations of this position essentially what it means is it's allowing oxygen poor blood from the right side of the heart to enter systemic circulation. So remember, Right side of the heart, that blood should be going to the lungs, pulmonary circulation. In this condition, it's mixing in with the blood going into systemic circulation. So taken as a whole, these four defects allow, again, that oxygen-poor blood to be pumped out into the systemic circulation, and this can lead to something called a hypercyanotic episode. You'll also just see them referred to more casually as tet spells, meaning tetralogy spells, tet spells. And these spells occur due to that reduced pulmonary blood flow, which is a result of a couple of different things. It's a result of both increased pulmonary vascular resistance and decreased systemic vascular resistance. So... The patient who has the tetralogy of flow is going to have most likely chronically lower than normal oxygen levels. These TET spells are when it's really severe. So it takes a condition that's already not great for the individual, right? And when we have that increased pulmonary vascular resistance and decreased systemic vascular resistance, we're going to have reduced pulmonary blood flow. That low oxygen level is going to get even more severe, and that's what we call that hypercyanotic episode or a TET spell. So let's dive into this just a little bit more because it is a very important concept that I want you to understand. So when systemic vascular resistance is high, the effect of that is that blood is shunted from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart through that VSD, through that ventricular septal defect. And then when pulmonary resistance is high, which is what is occurring when the individual has that TET spell, the blood is shunted from the right side of the heart through that ventricular septal defect to the left side of the heart. So in a TET spell, the physiological result is an increase in that right to left shunt and blood going from the right side of the heart oxygen poor side to the left side of the heart where it should be oxygen rich side. So what this means is more blood is being sent into systemic circulation than is being sent to the lungs that pulmonary circulation for gas exchange. And this can lead to as you can imagine drastically low oxygen saturation levels and cyanosis. So we call that a hypercyanotic episode. I'm going to repeat All of that because I know it's complex, and sometimes without visuals, it can be a little hard to follow. So, let's go through all of that again. And I want you to be visualizing two things while I talk through this. I want you to be thinking about normal cardiac physiology and what should be happening, but layered on top of that, think about what is happening because of that big ventricular septal defect. Okay, so. When we have these four defects of tetralogy of flow, they're going to allow oxygen-poor blood to be pumped out into systemic circulation, and this leads to a hypercyanotic spell or a hypercyanotic episode called a tet spell, okay? I think everybody's got that. So this occurs due to a reduction in pulmonary blood flow, meaning there's not as much blood being sent into the pulmonary vasculature. And this is a result of increased pulmonary vascular resistance. So when pulmonary vascular resistance is high, it's going to be hard to push anything into it, right? So that is one of the reasons. And the other is decreased systemic vascular resistance. Okay, so let's look at that systemic vascular resistance component. When SVR or systemic vascular resistance is high, then blood is shunted from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart through that ventricular septal defect, okay? So when we're looking at blood on the left side of the heart, it has come from the lungs. It has oxygen in it. So when systemic vascular resistance is high or increased, blood's going to get shunted from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart through that VSD, okay? And then when pulmonary resistance is High as well, which is common during that TEP spell, okay? So think about where the blood is right now before it gets into the pulmonary vasculature. It's in the right ventricle, but that pulmonary resistance is high, so the heart's going to have a hard time getting blood pushed into the pulmonary circulation. So what it's going to do is the blood's instead going to get shunted from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart. And that side of the heart should only be having oxygen-rich blood in it, but now it's got oxygen-poor blood mixed in. So when we have a TET spell, that physiological result is an increase in right-to-left shunting. Again, that means blood on the right side of the heart is getting shunted over to the left side of the heart. So oxygen-poor blood getting kind of mixed over, pushed over into the left side and mixing with that oxygen-rich blood. What this means, more blood is going to be sent into systemic circulation than is being sent into the lungs. That's the reduced pulmonary blood flow. And if blood's not going to the lungs for gas exchange, what happens? Drastically low oxygen saturation levels and cyanosis. And that is a TET spell. Okay, if you want to go through it again, just rewind a couple minutes and listen to all of that again. So TET spells are often preceded by some pretty predictable behavior so that you can almost see that a TET spell is going to happen. So this would be crying is a very common one that could bring on a TET spell. It happens when babies are feeding or nursing. It happens when they're having a bowel movement. And waking up from a nap is another time that they often occur. It can occur during times of dehydration if the little one has a fever And if their heart rate is elevated. So when a child's having a TET spell, you'll see that one of the interventions is to try to calm the child so that they stop crying, maybe get their heart rate down a little bit, and that can help. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, these spells occur most commonly in infants age about two to four months, but they can occur in older children and toddlers. So something interesting about the toddlers is that they will often squat down. When they are short of breath, because what do you think squatting down does to systemic vascular resistance? It's going to increase systemic vascular resistance and help improve blood flow to the lungs. So we'll talk about that more in a moment when we get into the treatments for Tetralogy of Fallot before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about what causes it. So the exact cause isn't really known, but it has been associated with certain underlying conditions. And there are quite a few. Some ones that you might see more commonly are chromosomal abnormalities, untreated gestational diabetes, maternal phenylketonuria, ketonuria. Maternal intake of retinoids such as Accutane during pregnancy, maternal alcohol use, viral illness during pregnancy, and simply being pregnant over forty years of age, tetralogy of Fallot accounts for about seven to ten percent of congenital defects. So it's not as uncommon as I initially thought it might be. So of all congenital defects, it accounts for 7 to 10% of them. And there are some complications of Tetralogy of Fallot. So if it is left untreated, not only does it cause that very significant hypoxic event, that tet, TET spell, it can also lead to cerebrovascular accident because clots forming in the heart that are circulated to the vessels of the brain. It can lead to brain abscesses due to the spread of localized infection into the brain. So in normal physiology, bacteria are filtered through that pulmonary vascular bed. And if that is bypassed, then high risk for brain abscess. Seizures can occur secondary to hypoxia and embolic neurological events like a stroke Infective endocarditis is another one. The infant or child could also have cardiac arrhythmias and heart failure and even sudden cardiac death. So definitely some complications. And I would say generally children are going to get this corrected. So let's go through the key things you need to know about tetralogy of flow using the straight A nursing latte method. So if this method is new to you. Welcome. I'm about to change your life and the way you study. This format helps you really just focus in on the key elements that you need to understand for things like case studies, SIM, clinical exams, things like that. So the first letter is an L. How does the patient look? So what do you notice about the patient? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So signs and symptoms of Tetralogy of Fallot can be classified as Acute symptoms and chronic symptoms. So those ongoing chronic symptoms that you might see in a child with tetralogy of flow include clubbing of the nails, which occurs just due to chronic hypoxia. You also see that in individuals with COPD, for example, and polycythemia, as well as another response to chronic hypoxia. The body just pumps out more red blood cells in an attempt to compensate. You may have the child just tiring easily during feedings. They will probably have poor weight gain because it's really exhausting to eat. So they don't eat well. They have poor weight gain. They may even have failure to thrive. They could have exercise intolerance because anytime they're exercising, that heart rate's going up and they could be having more of those shortness of breath, those cyanotic hypoxic episodes, periods of prolonged crying and irritability. A heart murmur is most likely to be evident, recurrent infections, and even episodes of syncope. And then during that acute episode, that hypercyanotic episode, or that TET spell, some things you may notice are cyanosis, so cyanotic skin and lips that progressively worsen. So we don't talk about this enough, but your book is going to probably just say it's a bluish tinge. But people have different colored skin, y'all. So let's talk a little bit about how you might recognize cyanosis in various skin tones. So, in light skinned infants, yes, cyanosis is a bluish, tint to the skin. But in darker skinned children, it's not going to be that it's going to possibly look more grayish or whitish discoloration. And if you were only taught that cyanosis was always blue, you may not recognize it in a darker skinned child. And then in children with more of a yellow skin tone, the cyanosis can cause a grayish to greenish hue. So Always be asking those questions when you're looking at skin signs, and if your textbook or your resource is only talking about fair-skinned people, you need to dig further, because I promise you, that's not everyone. Okay, the child may be more agitated than usual during this spell, they may appear distressed, be just basically inconsolable. They may have an increased respiratory rate with that shortness of breath or trying to get more air. Um, They may have increased respiratory depth or just really, really hard work or breathing. And then again, those drastically low oxygen saturation levels. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. So the next letter in latte is A. How do you assess a patient with Tetralogy of Fallot? So your first priority when assessing a patient with this condition is to determine if they need immediate intervention because they're having a TET spell. So you'll quickly assess for cyanosis and get an oxygen saturation level and assess their work of breathing that respiratory rate and depth. Additional assessments include, let's get a full set of vital signs, just why not? Auscultate lung sounds as heart failure can cause pulmonary edema. So you want to listen to the lungs. You want to listen to the heart sounds of a patient with Tetralogy of Fallot and assess for that murmur. So a systolic ejection murmur is auscultated at the upper left sternal border and is a result of that pulmonary stenosis. And then for that VSD, that ventricular septal defect, you could hear a hollow systolic murmur and that would be auscultated at the left sternal border as well. But the Systolic one is more upper left sternal border, and it's because of the pulmonary stenosis, hollow systolic murmur at the left sternal border, and that's because of the VSD. You should palpate pulses, noting that in some cases, they could be diminished or even absent, and this can vary in the age of the child. Monitor the patient's weight because, yes, they may have failure to thrive. They may not be gaining weight as they should. Their intake and their output. The next letter in the latte method is T, what tests are typically ordered for a child with tetralogy of Fallot. So an echocardiogram is an ultrasound of the heart, and this will show anatomical structures and function. This exam plays a vital role in the diagnosis and the evaluation of this condition. A chest x-ray could be done. A common finding with Tetralogy of Flow is something called a boot-shaped heart, and this is due to that right ventricle being enlarged. A 12-lead EKG could be done to determine if cardiac arrhythmias are present. And a cardiac catheterization, definitely a more invasive procedure than any of these other tests that we've talked about. And this may be done to really get in there, evaluate the structure and the function of the heart and its vessels. A cardiac MRI may be conducted if the physician needs additional anatomical details. Note that MRI is really hard for a child to go through because it's long and you have to hold still and follow instructions. And it's even scary for an adult. So children, especially those under the age of seven, maybe even a little older in some cases, will be anesthetized. They will have anesthesia for this diagnostic exam. And then some children, if they've got arrhythmias, they may wear a Holter monitor for a little bit. And what this is, is it's like a vest and it basically is recording like a continuous EKG that the child will wear for like 24, 48 hours or so to get an idea if they're in a cardiac arrhythmia or maybe going in and out of a cardiac arrhythmia. And then the next letter in the latte method is T, another T, and this one's for treatment. So what sorts of treatments are provided for a child with Tetralogy of Fallot? So the treatment is going to be aimed at responding to those Tet spells in a very quick and appropriate way, preventing infection, managing heart failure if that component is present, and Surgical correction of the anomaly. So let's talk first about the TET spells. So if this child is having this spell, this hypercyanotic episode, the general guidelines are to draw the child's knees up to their chest to increase systemic vascular resistance. This is going to increase the amount of blood flow out of the right ventricle and into that pulmonary vasculature. Okay, so you'll see that's a lot of the parent teaching that if they notice their child's having a TET spell, just pull their little knees up to their chest. And then again, an older child may squat down and cause that uh, knees to chest position on their own kind of instinctively. Providing oxygen for children would also be another component and the MD may order additional therapy. So if the knees up position, the oxygen that's ordered by MD parameters isn't working, other things could be an IV narcotic with a fluid bolus and that fluid bolus is generally 10 to 20 mils per kilogram. Now, the mechanism of how the narcotics help is unclear. Um... It may just calm the child enough that their heart rate comes down, they stop crying, the episode, you know, is easier to treat if they're not crying, if they don't um, have a high heart rate, but the fluids definitely are going to improve preload and help promote pulmonary blood flow. A beta blocker may be used to decrease right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and this can improve pulmonary blood flow. And then if these measures are not helping, not producing the desired result, the MD may progress to ordering a vasoconstrictor such as phenylephrine, and this will increase systemic vascular resistance by constricting those blood vessels, and this will promote blood flow into the pulmonary circulation versus systemic circulation, and we can get more blood into the lungs for oxygenation. Other treatments you'll see are antibiotics. Since children with this condition are at high risk for very serious infection, they are likely to receive prophylactic antibiotics until that defect can be surgically repaired. Now, if they have had a repair, they will likely still get prophylactic antibiotics before invasive procedures. And we'll talk about that when we get into the patient education component. Treatment for heart failure may be necessary. Many patients with Tetralogy of Fallot will have heart failure, and of course, we have to manage that. The mainstays of treatment for heart failure in this patient population are digoxin and a loop diuretic such as furosemide. So, Interestingly, the reason that ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs are not used in patients with tetralogy of Fallot are that these medications can reduce systemic vascular resistance, which would potentiate or make a hypercyanotic episode more likely. So they'll be getting digoxin and furosemide most likely surgery is the mainstay of treatment for tetralogy of flow. Most patients will get surgery by one year of age. Um, It's not uncommon to see them getting surgery under six months of age. That's actually probably most likely. Surgery can range from a complete repair, like a one and done, to a more localized correction initially and then a um, total, you know, completion of the repair at a later time. So what the surgeon does is obviously going to depend on the severity of the condition and the child's themselves. So a complete repair is done in most cases with the goal of creating a full distinction between pulmonary and systemic circulation. So as we've been talking about this, it's very clear that in this condition, pulmonary and systemic circulation, they get all mixed up, right? So with this repair, we want to have Pulmonary circulation, the oxygen-poor blood goes into pulmonary circulation, gets oxygen, oxygen oxygen-rich blood comes into the heart and goes systemically. We don't want to mix those two things up. So what this involves is closing the ventricular septal defect, so closing the VSD, and correcting that outflow obstruction from the right ventricle, and essentially addressing these two things corrects the other two deficits or defects associated with Tetralogy of Fallot. The child may also get a shunt, and a lot of times the shunt may be done as that preliminary thing and then the total correction done later. So a Blalock-Tausig shunt involves a small tube that creates a connection between the right subclavian artery and the right pulmonary artery, and While this doesn't alleviate the episodes of the cyanosis, the goal is for it to provide some improvement in oxygenation. It's basically getting a route for more blood to get into the pulmonary vasculature. It is considered temporary and is removed once that complete surgical repair is done. Now, it is important to note that there are some potential complications that a child may experience even after surgical correction and These include, but are not limited to because there are quite a few, but these would be maybe the most significant or most common, severe pulmonary regurgitation. So when a patch is used to improve right ventricular outflow, it can result in chronic and severe pulmonary regurgitation. So there's studies and and work being done on other ways of improving that right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Right ventricular enlargement can occur. There can be ascending aorta dilation, and this condition puts the patient at risk for aortic valve insufficiency. Um, It could also put them at risk for aortic dissection. It has occurred, but it's not as common. Continued right ventricular outflow obstruction can continue can continue to occur after a repair. If the obstruction is mild and is generally well-tolerated, then it may not get another intervention, but severe obstructions may require more surgery. Arrhythmias are most likely to be monomorphic ventricular tachycardia and atrial tachycardias, including AFib and A flutter, and sadly, sudden cardiac death. So identifying patients at risk for sudden cardiac death prior to surgery is absolutely vital and may require an ICD being implanted before the procedure. Another treatment is a pharmacologic treatment with prostaglandins, a prostadil is a common one, and children with severe right ventricular outflow obstruction who are significantly hypoxic and cyanotic may receive prostaglandins to maintain ductal patency and maintain blood flow to pulmonary vasculature. So if you see a child on prostaglandins, that would maybe explain why. So the next letter in the Latte Method is E, how do you educate the family? So in addition to teaching all the basic things about the anatomic abnormalities present in Tetralogy of Fallot, you'll also want to teach caregivers what to do during one of those tet spells. You want to make sure they understand when to seek emergency treatment and how to care for the child after the surgical repair is done. So a key thing is teaching the parents how to recognize what that TET spell is and what they need to do. Again, the general guidelines are to raise the child's knees to their chest, which is going to help improve blood flow to the lungs by increasing systemic vascular resistance. Teach parents of older children that the child may instinctively squat down when they feel shortness of breath, and that this position also helps increase blood flow to the lungs, helps them get more oxygen to their body. You also want to teach the parrots when to seek medical attention, and this will definitely be something that they'll discuss with their physician. Some common reasons to seek medical attention are cyanosis that is not getting better, seizures, losing consciousness, and severe difficulty breathing. Lifestyle modifications include giving the child smaller, more frequent meals because baby is going to tire easily and we don't want to precipitate a TET spell. So smaller, more frequent meals, keeping the child as calm as possible as that additional stress can precipitate a TET spell as can excess energy expenditure. We also want to avoid activity in extreme weather because that's also stressful for the body and ensure adequate rest between activities. Teach the parents that the child will require surgery at some point, and this may be done in one procedure or multiple procedures with shunt placement occurring first. It's going to depend on the child's condition and the MD's preference. Teach the patients about the need for prophylactic antibiotics. Even after surgical repair, the child will likely always need to consult with their cardiologist before any procedures are done. And get antibiotics before anything invasive like dental work or any kind of invasive medical procedure. You want to teach the parents to keep their child's gums very healthy, their teeth and gums very healthy to help reduce the risk of endocarditis. And teach the parents that most children are able to be active after recovering from the surgical repair. The cardiologist will, of course, be the one to determine the appropriate activity level based on each individual child. So I really hope this helps you understand Tetralogy of Flow for your nursing school case studies and exams. If you're interested in other pediatric topics, I'll put a link in the episode notes for a quick way for you to access those from the website. You can then see which episode numbers are pediatric ones and then come back to your podcast player to find them. And of course, you can listen straight from the website as well. So I do have a quick announcement. I have a free class coming up if you're listening to this episode in Real time. If you are a new nursing student, I want you to come to this free class that I'm giving online. It'll be a live free class called Five Ways Nursing Students Struggle and What to Do Instead. I've been mentoring nursing students for years now, and I can basically identify five key ways that students tend to struggle. And to be honest, they're pretty avoidable if you plan ahead and know what to do in advance. So, We'll be talking about that in the free class. So I'm going to put a link in the episode notes So you can register for that. And then Boot Camp is also going on sale in a few days. It goes on sale April 3rd, 2022. It does go on sale multiple times per year. So depending on when you're listening to this, you might think, which April 3rd? This one I'm talking about is April 3rd, 2022. I will include a link in the episode notes for that as well. Boot Camp is my nursing school prep course that really gets you prepared and ready to start nursing school way, way, way on top of your game and pretty pretty much feeling like you're confident and ready to conquer anything. So I want you to check out those things in the episode notes. And then next week, I will see you back here. And we'll be talking about two conditions that students often mix up and sometimes have trouble differentiating between. It's one of those things where they're the same but different kind of, and then you have to know how to differentiate them and what the key differences are for your exams. And that is diabetes insipidus and S-I-A-D-H, Syndrome of Inappropriate Antidiuretic Hormones. So D-I and S-I-A-D-H coming up for you next week on the podcast. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply Search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.